Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Global News is reporting Ukrainian authorities said today that Russia's military bombed an art school sheltering some 400 people in the embattled port city of Mariupol, where Ukraine's president said an unrelenting Russian siege would be remembered for centuries to come. Indeed, it will. We uh, have Dmitry Gurin with us now. He is a member of the Ukrainian parliament for Mariupol. Mr. Gurin, a terrible story. What can you tell us? Uh, Can you give us any more details about what went on there, that attack on that building with 400 people inside? Uh, hello, thank, thanks for your interest. And, uh, uh, you know, we have uh, to understand all of us that it's not the story about maternity hospital or art school or drama theater. No, the city is totally destroyed. I talked today with the mayor's office and uh, uh, it's really frightening what they said. Uh, like, there is no city anymore. It was half a million people and uh, everything is totally destroyed. All my neighborhood cannot be restored at all. It was a big district, like 130,000 people. Uh, You know, this classic Soviet nine-story buildings, and it cannot be rebuilt. The whole city had to be built from scratch. Uh, And uh, this, this, you know, uh, very uh, interesting and uh, Uh, and I don't know, interesting for media stories about drama theater, maturity hospital. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, all the hospitals are destroyed. Almost all the schools are destroyed. My school is destroyed, university, my whole neighborhood, all the, uh, my another art school where I I started is also destroyed. And even pool is destroyed, everything. So now we don't have city anymore. We only have uh, 300,000 people there without heating, electricity, gas, mobile network, uh, without uh, uh, water and out of food. And uh, they are all uh, under rubble of the city, you know, and uh, part of them live in basements and part of them, they are just uh, in their flats waiting for a tank to shoot their building. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it's not the, the war. It's uh, mass murdering. Yeah, the suffering from what we understand that's taking place in your city and across Ukraine, but the focus in many reports has been on Mariupol. The suffering just is immense. And then we've heard that, uh, that when it's been attempted to move women and children out of the city and get them away from the immediate fighting, that they become targets of the Russians. Uh, yes, from the first day when they uh, said they will open humanitarian corridor, uh, the women and children are, and all other people in Mariupol are targets. You know, they have an order to kill civilians. Uh, at first, we couldn't believe it, like in two weeks ago, at first days, but now we clearly see it. They have order. They kill, they kill everybody uh, who is trying to escape city by their own. Every civilian car. And there is, it's not the Putin who pressed a button uh, for dropping the bomb on the drama theater. You know, that drama theater story is really interesting uh, because it's uh, the lone standing building in the, in the middle of park. 
uh, and uh, no, uh, and all other buildings around it like are like hundred meters away, and uh, near the drama theater building that was written children in very big letters on the ground, especially for a pilot of airplane, for not dropping bomb on this uh, on this uh, drama theater, and they did it. And you know, they uh, in my neighborhood where I grew up and lived for fifteen years, they. There, there is no any military infrastructure and never were, never. And the bomb and artillery doesn't stop at all. And they destroyed it to the ground. And it's, it's not like the story about drama theater. And it's not, wow, they're killing women and children. No, they're killing everybody. It's mass murdering. The first week of the war, it was conventional war. And, but in a week, Everybody has seen, and Russia also, and all the world have seen that they cannot beat, beat us on a battlefield. So they changed their tactics. And now they're doing the same that they did in Syria. This, the same things they did in Chechnya. Yeah. They're just destroying. So they did that in Chechnya between uh, 1999 and 2009, and they did it in Syria in 2015. In Syria, they also used chemical weapons, which is Putin's... Uh, methodology let me I, I hesitate to ask this question but I have to are people starving every I mean I know people are starving but are people dying of starvation in Mariupol every day uh, we don't know if they are dying from starvation because they're just uh, a lot of people dying every day there and uh, you know the numbers that are in the in the media about 2,000 500 people uh, dead in Mariupol, you know, it's only people uh, whose bodies were collected on streets. Mm -hmm. And we don't know at all how many people, uh, that people are now in their apartments. And uh, by our estimate, it's from 20 to 30,000 people. And uh, we understand that in several days, people will die from dehydration and from hunger. Because this city doesn't have full water also mariupol is uh, in uh, in the pretty arid climate and uh, there is no wells in the city and it's under hard siege and people cannot go you know uh, they have uh, there is a small river in mariupol but people cannot get there because the street fights is everywhere and it's uh, you know it's not the street fights we can imagine it's street fights with using of tanks you know as you're talking and describing we talked to you two weeks ago as well. But as you're describing, and as you did two weeks ago, you're describing your city where you grew up, where your parents, I think, still are. Uh, when you describe your city as it is today, rubble, destroyed, uh, with intent by someone who is totally malevolent, doesn't give a damn about human life. When you describe that, I keep thinking two months ago, that was a city that was vibrant and active and People have, were concerned because the Russians were on the border. But it was at the same time, it was a city that was functioning, that was how you knew it, where you grew up. And today you're describing total, totally destroyed civilization in, 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 in Mariupol. I don't know what to say to you, Mr. Gurin, except it makes me heart sick. I can tell you this. We just found out, and I, this isn't going to make a big difference, but it may just tell you how people feel in North America. We just found out that polling shows, both in Canada and the United States, 
that a plurality of people in both countries do not agree with the politicians who decided on a no-fly zone. A plurality of people in the United States and a plurality of people in Canada are saying the politicians were wrong. They should have established a no-fly zone. That's good news, and I understand your people, because uh, four days ago, uh, Ukrainian sociologists uh, made a poll in uh, Russia, uh, like a phone, phone calls poll, and uh, uh, now we know that uh, 86% of uh, Russians who answered the question are okay and uh, support war in Ukraine. And now we know that 75% of Russians are uh, are okay and support possible war with Poland. And uh, 40 per, uh, uh, 45%, I'm sorry, the war with Baltic states. So we understand now that uh, the World War III is already begun. And uh, I think that people understand it's uh, better than politics. Two weeks ago, we spoke with Russian financier Andrei Movchan who in a Moscow Times op-ed described Putin as a terrorist who first abducts millions of hostages and then begins to murder them. Mr. Mofchan argues the West, though, is playing right into Putin's hands with sanctions. And Mr. Mofchan says back with us, non-resident scholar in the economic policy program at the Carnegie Moscow Center. His research focuses on Russia's economy, and this is interesting, the future of Russia's economic relations with the EU. From 2006 to 2008, Mr. Mofchan was the CEO of the Renaissance Credit Bank, and he was named the most successful CEO of an asset management company in Russia by Forbes. Mr. Mofchan, good to have you back with us. I just want to quote from the story you wrote, or the op-ed you wrote in the Moscow Times. You wrote, with half-crazed rhetoric, the Russian dictator and his coterie are declaring their right to employ massacre and destruction to establish whatever order they want in the territory of independent countries while threatening to unleash nuclear weapons against anyone who would dare to interfere. Since we spoke two weeks ago, has anything occurred that has caused you to change your, your, your view on this? And how do you assess Putin and what he's doing right now? Well, uh, good evening, and thank you very much for inviting me in. Um, during these two weeks, not, not much has changed, actually, and, and surprisingly not much has changed, because the, the operation, uh, as it is called in Russia, or the war uh, unleashed in Ukraine, as it's called in the entire world, um, didn't progress much. Russian troops uh, didn't manage to capture any significant point or city. The... Uh, the area occupied didn't change in the last two weeks. Uh, the situation with the sanctions didn't change much as well. Some of the uh, personal sanctions were, were implemented on top of what, what was done before, but uh, no oil embargo, no maritime embargo, no uh, significant steps were undertaken um, since, since we last spoke. The situation uh, looks to be uh, quite stable in, in negative terms. So he, uh, he being Putin, is not at all, uh, I shouldn't say not at all, but not as disturbed as he would be if there were a complete economic boycott of Russia, which is in, within the, uh, the realm of the possible and within the realm of the powers of the, of the Western politicians. I believe that the, the approach um, uh, taken by Kremlin in that situation is that uh, they need to solve their prime military goals 
and their prime military goal is not to occupy Ukraine or not the victory there. Their goal is to to pretend they succeeded in Ukraine, to sell it to, to the population in Russia and to retreat on most favorable terms in terms of the sanctions. Uh, later, they started to talk uh, about the, the sanctions lifting as a condition, as a precondition for the retreat. Um, I think they still believe that they can get away with that and the sanctions will be lifted in big part. And at least the oil embargo would not be in place and they will continue selling oil. They'll continue selling gas. Uh, and uh, just selling oil and gas is enough to feed the economy. They, the economy would not prosper, of course. The economy is uh, now uh, pushed back about 20, 25 years. But uh, people uh, people accept that. Uh, generally, there is no uh, mass protest in Russia. Many people um, uh, unify their positions with the position of the power. Many people are frightened of, of expressing their positions. And uh, Putin rightfully thinks that, that the country will survive. It will be, it'll be poor, uh, with no progress, no science, um, no ability for people to go on vacations abroad. Uh, the deficits of, um, of food and uh, brown and white goods and electronic goods, uh, but, uh, but, but it still will uh, be solid and working on, on, the, on the Putin's ambitions. Yeah, you told us two weeks ago that what the West needs to do is deprive the Kremlin of what it needs to retain control and project power. And those were three things, keeping Russians tied down inside Russia retains brain power and ingenuity for Putin to exploit. You also told us, and this really surprised me, that he controls the population by the very fact that very few people in Russia are wealthy. Only 100,000 families in Russia have savings of more than $1 million. And there's also the so-called personal sanctions. So if he can control those three aspects of what's going on externally directed his way, then he maintains at least the illusion of doing what he said he would do in satisfying the general Russian population, which isn't all that well informed, that projecting the sense through disinformation that he's doing what he set out to do. Absolutely. Uh, and that, that's how it works right now. And if you follow the events in Russia, you see these stadiums, <coughs> that he gathered uh, in support of his policies and how the propaganda works and how calm all the uh, top officials and uh, and oligarchs are, you would see that the process of consolidation really goes because poor people, they they are addicted to the uh, to the television. They um, consume what's, what's being given by, by the TV. Um, the uh, social networks are much harder to, to follow now. Because you need to, you need to use VPNs for that. You, you cannot do it directly, and not not many people know what it is. Um, the alternative media were closed, and now there is a campaign against the enemies of the people in Russia, enemies of the nation. It's official, and then people start to um, uh, start to fear uh, talking to their neighbors, uh, as it was in the thirties um, in, in in Soviet Russia. Uh, and, um, and and even those people who could have left Russia, taking the intellectual potential out of that, are pretty much helpless now because yeah. they they don't get the um, propositions from abroad. Many companies stop hiring uh, Russians all around the world. Many com many companies uh, are reconsidering the positions Russians have. Many people say we would like to leave, but but we just can't. We don't know how how to survive outside Russia. And they'll be doomed to be part of the regime and to help the regime at that.
Do you think the, the Western politicians, the Western leaders, have been intimidated by Putin and, uh, and, and just are, are doing exactly what they should not be doing? And what I'm driving at here is he threatened obliquely the use of nuclear weapons, and the Western politicians, led by Mr. Biden, immediately jumped to the bait and said, well, if we get into a shooting war with Russia, uh, an American jet fighter against a Russian jet fighter, we have World War III, and it could be a nuclear exchange, which I think is exactly what Putin wanted as far as the response from Biden is concerned. So is that correct? And then secondly, what do you think Putin is capable of as far as using additional weapons? We, we hear that he's used hypersonic missiles in, in Ukraine now. Do you think he's capable of moving, moving to biological and chemical weapons as well? Uh, the the second question is maybe easier. Um, using biological and chemical weapons in Ukraine, which is adjacent to Russia and has a very long border, is extremely dangerous with regards to the the consequences for for Russia itself. Uh, the two countries are very much interconnected, and when the Chernobyl nuclear plant exploded, uh, the major um, major damage was done to Russian territories because of the. Uh, because of the cloud which which went from Chernobyl um, by the wind to to Russia, with that regard, uh, I don't really think Putin will do that, and there is little sense in doing that because it's it's impossible to win the war by using the biological or chemical weapon. You can kill more people, you will uh, alienate more people in the world, including the Chinese. The Chinese will be frightened as well. But 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 you you don't get to to any positive results on that. You even would not be able to operate in the area which is contaminated. Um, with that with that regard, I wouldn't I I wouldn't think he is preparing for that. He's he has just started, uh, according to the media, to use the hypersonic missiles. I have no idea how many hypersonic missiles they have. I I believe there are not many. It's still an experimental weapon and. Yes. Uh, most probably there are, there are just just few missiles he, he he uses now and he uses them now because he's uh, short of um, other missiles including the the winged missiles uh, and, and that's that's bad news for him actually not the good news mm -hmm. um, speaking about the first question uh, whether the um, western leaders are terrified by by mr putin's or, man or played into his hands by their yeah, and, and and essentially play play into, into, into the into his hands. It's it's, it's a big question because uh, from from Putin's perspective, he now fights the West and Ukraine. From the cynical Western perspective, perspective, um, uh, Putin's fighting Ukraine, and the West is not part of the war at all. Uh, Putin's lost about fifteen thousand troops, ten percent of its tanks, and about seven percent of its uh, its fighter aircrafts, and the West is still not in war. Um, in certain sense, uh, that's beneficial for the West. Uh, one more question for you. Uh, your research focuses on Russia's economy, and you also look at the future of Russia's economic relations with the EU. What could that possibly look like going forward? What could Russia's uh, economic relations with the EU possibly look like? It's very hard to predict for the long term. You know, you know the, the economic relations between Germany and France, for example, in 1930 and in 1950 were, were very different. And in between, they, they were different as well. 
So talking about 10 or 15 years ahead, I have no predictions. It's impossible to do. Talking about uh, one to, to three years time, uh, most probably these relations would be limited to the supplies of oil from Russia and the supplies of, of gas from Russia. Uh, and, and Russia will still be importing food and, and medicines and all the things which are critical for, for the civilian health and, and, and lives. Uh, and nothing else. Everything else will be stopped. Uh, okay. Mostly everything else is stopped already. Maria Avdiva, she's a specialist in research and analysis, also security and disinformation. She's the research director at the European Experts Association. She lives in Kharkiv, which is only 40 kilometers from uh, the Russian border in Ukraine. And she's seen a lot. Maria, thank you for coming on the air. First of all, how are you? How's your city? Hello. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. Uh, yeah, the city is under heavy shelling for, for, for the last uh, three, four days. And uh, the Russian troops are hitting most of the residential areas and the historical city center. Uh, they, are, they were not able to get control over the city. So there are no Russian troops or saboteurs inside. The Russians are holding positions outside of Kharkiv, which they previously managed to, to get over. And Ukrainian troops even trying to counterattack and push them back to the, to the Russian border. So uh, they mainly Russian troops are mainly on the uh, on the east and the northeast of Kharkiv, and then the the uh, the southern and western parts are uh, now without uh, uh, so are free. The the roads are not blocked, so it is uh, there is possibility to get to and from the city, uh, but also it is very uh, dangerous because uh, the shelling doesn't stop day and night, and when you are driving in the car. Uh, for example, you with your family are trying to get out of the city, uh, the, you, the, the car can easily become a target for this missile attack. So that's that's uh, dangerous. And also people are staying, uh, the city is mostly deserted, very many people have left, but some of them are going out in the morning to get some food supplies and staying in the queues in front of the shops because there are very few shops that now are open and also there are cases when people stay to get some bread and then the missile attack happens and some of the people will be killed because they were just outdoors uh, to, to get to get some supplies so uh, it, it's already 20 five days from the beginning of this war and there are less and less people who are staying inside the city but then uh, the uh, the resistance and the level of uh, of resistance among the military and those civilians who joined the military defense units are even bigger than before because each death of a child of civilian of woman uh, brings them to the understanding that they will and must stay uh, on their positions till the end because behind them there are their homes, families, and loved ones. The city of uh, Kharkiv, is it Kharkiv? Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, exactly. Okay, so the city of Kharkiv is the normal population, what, four, four or 500,000? Is that it? That's the number that I heard. I'm just wondering how no, many no. people have been able to remain, how many people are still in the city, 
And, you know, you talk about uh, folks just going out to buy some groceries where they have an opportunity to do so early in the morning and they're still being subjected to missile attack. I'm just wondering about the state of mind and the, and the, and the determination that is being displayed by the people of your city if they're, as they're constantly under attack. Yeah, Kharkiv is the second largest city of Ukraine. It's very hard to say was for me now because actually now it's no more the case. But yes, it, it was the largest, the second largest city. The population was one and a half million people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the official numbers was that uh, 6,000, uh, sorry, 600,000 people left using the railway uh, only. And also, I would estimate that probably the same number has uh, left uh, Kharkiv by by cars and by their own transportation. So I would estimate that probably 600,000 people are still in the city. So that's that's a lot. Yes, it is. And yeah. And they are. Uh, I have been to the to the underground uh, to see how well the situation is there because people use a metro subway to hide there, mm-hmm. uh, and they live there. So it's not they they go there time by time, but generally live there for all this period. And uh, it is very hard to see pe- people in this in these conditions. There are children there, and uh, there are special. Uh, cars like uh, or the ma- ma- underground cars subway cars where there will be only children with toys on the floor and people will try to you know to create some kind of normal situation for them if it could be called normal at all uh, and those people whom i talk to they always say that what they want is the ceasefire and uh, the war will be over because it is very hard for them to survive in these uh, circumstances. But also I talked to military and territorial defense and their mood is that they uh, they will fight and they are going to fight. And there is no way of you know how Russian troops can uh, get over Kharkiv because their morale is very low. They do not understand Russian troops. What are they doing here? Why were they sent here? They were told that there are some Nazis here, but Kharkiv is a Russian-speaking city, a large Russian-speaking city, and people there there were never any kind of Nazis on this territory and anywhere in Ukraine. And uh, the Russian troops, these young conscripts who come here, they do not know what is the goal of this war, and that's why Ukrainian troops prevail. And that is why Ukraine will win in this war, because we are protecting our land, whereas Russian troops are now aggressors and occupiers and are seen like that all over Ukraine. Maria, what are your thoughts about Western leaders, Western politicians, and their response to Ukraine's needs? They've sent weapon systems, uh, but they have not done what Ukraine has asked for since the very beginning. And we'll be talking about that a little later on in the program. And that is a no-fly zone over the over the country. What is your response? What is your sense about how the West has responded to Ukraine's needs? Yeah, that, that is what President Zelensky and all people of Ukraine ask. Uh, no-fly zone, call it whatever you want. But the, the, the reason is that uh, West should supply Ukraine with the air defense systems, with more defensive weapons, with uh, medium and long range uh, uh, possibilities uh, for uh, anti-aircraft systems. That means that, uh, th- that is, so the reason for that is that Putin and his troops are using uh, the air above Ukraine to, 
terrorize Ukrainians, terrorize the population of Ukraine, civilians, because they are not able to do anything on the ground. And Ukraine asks for that not only because it is it, we need it here for our country, but because Putin is testing NATO countries. The last attack he made, uh, it was on Lviv, which is the western city of Ukraine, which is very close to the border with Poland. And I'm researching and monitoring Russian state media a lot, and they are now openly, openly discussing which country they would invade next. Will it be Poland or Moldova? So they speak about that on national state TV programs. And it is very clear that Putin is showing to NATO and to the Western countries that he will not stop and he is he will use any kind of weapons, any kind of you know, to any country which he which he wants to. And that is why the only language Putin understands is the language of power. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, speaking about not provoking Putin is not a really good strategy because he is already provoked. He is already in a full war against the free world. And this is now the moment to show him that the, the free world, all the democratic countries are here defending Ukraine. But because not only for sake of Ukraine, but for sake of the uh, of the security of whole Europe. We're going to talk about the uh, the economy, the worldwide economy and our Canadian economies. We've had two years of COVID. We're in the midst of the international supply chain crisis. We have the CP rail strike underway. Uh, inflation is climbing dramatically. The stock markets are, well, they're up, they're down, they're everywhere. And there's, of course, the political uncertainty. Add to that the energy cost reality. We talked about that in some great detail yesterday. And uh, what shape is Canada's economy in? What does it mean to you and to me? And where are we going? There's only one person I know who can sort all of this out for us. It's the next guy. Dr. Eric Cam, macroeconomist at Ryerson University. Do you have your, uh, you have your magic potion ready, Dr. Cam? Well, thank you for having me. And I have to admit that I am by far neither as courageous nor as brave as many of your guests this weekend and last weekend. But let's do our best to soldier forward. Yeah, well, let's let's start with this. Let's start with what's going on in uh, in Ukraine with Russia and the invasion and what that is causing internationally to the to the economies of the world and to the economy of Canada. What impact does Ukraine have on an already disturbed international economy? Well, we're very lucky in that respect because it's a glass half full issue, Roy. What happened this week was that the Russian government, which is much, much bigger than the Ukrainian government, uh, they defaulted on a bunch of bonds and interest that was supposed to be paid on those bonds. And that was $117 million this past Wednesday with another about half a billion dollars coming up later in the month. And the interesting part is that the Russian government could have covered that debt if they didn't have all of their assets frozen by the rest of the world and the World Bank and the IMF. So what that does is it takes their currency down about 40% against the US dollar, which this is going to start the spin cycle, the spin cycle of the Russian economy starting to spiral a little bit out of control negatively. Now, the good news for the world economy and by association Canada's economy is that Russian debt 
was only about 13% of its GDP. And that makes it a tiny percent, Roy, of world indebtedness. So it's going to be a shock to Russia and very sad to the people living in Russia that their economy is spiraling out of control. But to the rest of the world, it's a very small level of indebtedness and exposure. So will it hit Canada directly? Not to the extent that it would some of the other countries like Turkey or Greece that are major, major trading partners with Russia and the Ukraine. So the, the so I don't have any short answers. My long answer is it's not great, but we're very buffered from its effects. Okay, so um, the issues that we face in this country, the economic challenges that we face, they have been around for some period of time now. They're not necessarily making the headlines right away, each and every day, but they are still there. They're still a fact of life, and they're becoming more challenging. So let's get into some of this. Let's see if we can get you to share your thoughts with the inflation issue, price hikes going up for the necessities of life. What can you, what, what, what's on your mind on that? What share with us? I'll be honest. I think it's disastrous. Um, you've asked me before, what's the most important macro variable in the economy? And yeah. I've said the price level and people get very upset. They write me back and they say, isn't it gross domestic product or this or that? No, I don't think so. I think what matters most to to Mr. and Mrs. trying to make a living are prices and can they afford their life and are their savings and are their wages being eroded. And right now we are at a, a, a new high. We are at almost about 7% inflation. And let me tell you, Roy, I want to dispel a myth because people have been writing me and I've heard on other media, well, that doesn't matter if you take out core inflation, but Roy, why on God's earth would you take out core inflation? Why would you remove things like oil and gas and food, which are the things that people most buy? So I say the heck with that, leave in core inflation and we're at about seven percent that is a seven percent erosion in your salary my salary and people's abilities to buy goods so if you want to ask me next how does the economy look i can give you pluses i can make you feel good and give you statistics that are in the pluses but to people that have money to spend and to support their families we are in a very very rough time roy see what i want to know is where's the cliff I don't want somebody to tell me, let me, I can put a nice bow on this for you, and I can tell you there's something inside the box, and you may like it, but I can, I'll, I'll just show you the nice bow for now. I want to know where the cliff is. The cliff is in the inevitable raising of interest rates. That is that is the cliff. Now, I can't tell you without a crystal ball where what number that is, but at some point now, rates are not just going to rise, but they're going to start to rise higher and higher. Now, will that slow down a little bit of spending and reduce this inflation number? Yes, but you always have to ask in economics, Roy, what has to give? Something has to give. And what's going to give in that respect is mortgages. What's going to give is that mortgage rates are going to start to skyrocket. And if you're one of the people that is perilously close to having to renegotiate your mortgage this year or next year, you can rest assured that those rising interest rates that may reduce inflation, maybe by a percentage, are going to raise your mortgage rates by a heck of a lot more than a percentage. So to me, the cliff, because economics is about people, the cliff is when people start to take their houses and put the keys under the front door and walk away. And as you know, Roy, 
because you're an educated consumer. Don't say it can't happen. It happened in the 80s. It happened in the 90s. And history, we, we know we are doomed to repeat it. And the parallels are ominous to where we were in those decades. We were in, uh, in Florida in 2010, the wintertime. And that's where the, uh, the R word, the recession, had hit the United States pretty hard. And there were people who had homes on the inland waterways, and we were looking at uh, some ads. It was real estate. It was just flying off the shelf, if you will, at, at deep discount prices. I couldn't believe it. There were condos, um, turnkey, with a, with a boat slip, 90 grand, $100,000. These places had gone for God knows what two, three years earlier. And uh, they're back to where they were now, but people were struggling and they were hurting. Are we looking? I don't want to scare people to have to death now, but is that what you're telling us is potentially around the corner? Yes. And I don't want to scare people either, by the way. Um, real no, it's, let's get to the truth. Yeah. My aunt, my aunt and uncle paid $53,000 for a condo in South Florida in exactly the time period you're talking about. No, I don't want to scare people and I don't want to be an alarmist and I don't need a Twitter attack. But the reality is people have to know where they are and they've already seen half the story. They've already seen prices rising to the tune of about yeah. 7%. Yeah. And many of those people told me, you know, a year ago, I couldn't have imagined that. Well, where are we going to be a year from now if they do raise rates? And they're talking about potentially four or five or six 0.25% increases. And the answer is going to be found in the mortgage market. And, you know, you can be glib and you can be one of the people that says, well, maybe some of the prices of houses will come down. Yeah, that's true. And so if you're on that side of the market, you're looking good. But if you're one of those people, Roy, and we know there's far too many in our country, one paycheck away from insolvency, yes, you're going to walk away from your house. And I'm far more worried about those people than the people that are going to be led into the housing market. Let's talk about the um, what's happening as far as energy uncertainty is concerned and the price hikes that are reflected at the gas station. We have I found out yesterday that there are 122 countries in the world that on average sell their gasoline for less money than we sell ours on, uh, for average, uh, whatever my mouth is trying to say. 122 countries sell their gas for less than we do on average. We are the third um, from the top country with natural resources available to us. We don't need to be doing this, and, and our prices are going to go up again on April the 1st. So m would you just address the issue of energy uncertainty, and I'll stop talking now. Well, that's actually, you've, you've wrapped up two issues in there. So if we can start with the second issue, that is your government hard at work imposing a carbon tax when they have no reason or right to do so. And we both know it. People that are paying the price at the pump, they don't want a carbon tax. They don't need to be further punished for driving to their jobs. And that is just the bottom line. But if you want to go back, you know, it really reinforces. We talked about teaching economics. I teach my students about specialization and comparative advantage. And basically that means, can you produce a product better, cheaper, and more efficient than somebody else? And guess what? We do. But for some inane reason, we don't take advantage of it, Roy. We don't need the rest of the world for oil. We don't. We can be self-sufficient or at least to a great, great extent. But for some reason, we choose to check our comparative advantage at the door and go out and buy a good that's cheaper than what we could produce it for. It's it's bewildering. And every time I drive by the gas station, the consumer of me is sad, but the professor in me just shakes his head and goes, someone should pick up a first-year book because the answer is right there. You know, we spoke yesterday with uh, two pollsters, one in Quebec, one national, about how Canadians feel 
about the uh, what we're doing as far as oil is concerned, as far as pipelines are concerned. And the reality is that people do not agree with government. They do not. They want, look, the finger's always pointed at Quebec. They're always the troublemakers. Well, you know, perceptually. They're not, because Quebecers have consistently said, we want oil, we want Western Canadian oil, and we want it delivered by pipeline. What do we do? National picture's the same. I'm just looking at numbers here, trying to get it off StatsCan. Uh, 3.7 million metric tons. They will not allow me to get at this. 3.7 million metric tons of crude oil imported to Canada from Saudi Arabia alone in 2020. Saudi Arabia just last week executed 81 men simultaneously. These are the people we're doing business with, but on our side of the fence, Dr. Cam, we say, oh, our pipelines aren't any good, they're not right, it's not fair, they're not, they're not properly protecting the environment, and uh, there's something wrong politically as well. We're dealing with people who murder or execute 81 people on the same day. I think you can use the word murder, Roy, and I'm going to try not to get on my soapbox, but I'd like to put on a T-shirt because I tell my students this. This is what happens when bad government gets in the way of good economics. And you're going to see it now with this CP rail strike. You know, anytime that the supply chain issue is as bad as it is, what's the worst thing you could do? The worst thing you could do is further reduce supply and raise prices. So it's in a way, it's a tribute to what many of us have been telling people for years. Stop shoving a wedge between supply and demand. Stop throwing away comparative advantage. Stop having bad government get in the way of good business. And until it stops, you're gonna just see prices go higher and higher. And I feel sorry for everybody in the economy who's letting political aspiration get in the way of sound thinking. Yeah. Do you see the likelihood of positive movement on the economic side of things, nationally and internationally? But let's be selfish. Let's look at Canada. Do you see the likelihood of positive movement in our national economy in the next 12 months? If by positive movement in gross domestic product, meaning are we going to be able to increase the amount of goods and services we produce? Yes, but as I've tried to say, Roy, I think that that's, as they say, a fickle mistress. You can point to gross domestic product rising, and the Prime Minister will, but so what? It was bound to rise anyway. We're coming out of a pandemic. What matters is people's welfare and livelihoods, and those are only going in one direction, and that's down. So for the average family struggling now, and my feeble definition of inflation has been, when you go to the gas station and the grocery store on the same morning and you can't afford to fill up it either, that situation is not going to get any better. Yes? No. Which one? No, absolutely. And you know what? I feel bad for people that are going to either lose their home yeah. or not be able to get a rental home because those prices are up about 20% in the GTA and about 10% across Canada. But they're going to stand up and go, I'm homeless. I can't afford gas. I can't afford food. But thank God gross domestic product has risen. It's ludicrous, Roy. We've got to get back. The prime minister has got to remember it is about livelihoods and families and stop the, the stop the insanity it's enough thank you for listening to today's podcast if you want to hear more subscribe to the roy green show on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify stitcher or wherever you find your favorites and if you like what you hear leave us a review and tell a friend i'm roy green have a great weekend